Hello everyone, I'm Kevin Moore and you're now listening to The Moore Show. For the next hour, I'll cover subjects of an alternative variety that most shows do not touch. On today's show, I'm joined by Charles Pellegrino to discuss his book, The Last Train to Hiroshima. So stay tuned, enjoy, and I'll be right back with Charles. Missed a show or a guest? Want to know more about The Moore Show and upcoming guests? Then log on to www.themoreshow.co.uk. listening to The Moore Show, and here's your host, Kevin Moore. Welcome back to the show. We're about to be joined by our guest, Charles Pellegrino. Well, just a bit of background on Charles. He's the author of 18 books, including Unearthing Atlantis and Titanic, The Untold Story. He is also the scientist whose dinosaur cloning recipe inspired the Jurassic Park series. Charles has also made dives to the Titanic and to the strange oasis of the deep ocean hydrothermal vents aboard the Mere Submersibles. Charles, welcome to the show. Hello. Now, just tell me a bit about your work. Well, 
uh, with the Hiroshima and Nagasaki project, it was uh, something that actually began uh, in the 1970s with my first encounters with uh, survivors of the atomic bombs. I had a friend who's in high school whose father was in the FBI. We stayed friends throughout uh, college, and he knew that I was uh, both interested and, and horrified with the rate that the Cold War was going on with both sides building more and more and more nuclear weapons. In fact, I'd have to say somewhere inside that might have even been a reason for my saying, you know, it might not be a bad idea to go down to New Zealand to study for my Ph.D., where I have family uh, relatives that live down there, and I might even want to stay there the rest of my life. But uh, it was he who first began to introducing me to some of the survivors uh, including that uh, one physician whose eyesight was, he was giving a, ta a speech in New York City, and whose eyesight was actually corrected by the overpressure from the bomb. Okay, now, the book itself, because I, I checked uh, Amazon in the UK today, and it's been taken off Amazon. Now, there is a reason for this, isn't, isn't there? Uh, the book has come out, I, I mean, the book came out from the start with bad luck. First, there was the big fight between my publisher and Amazon itself over their electronic Kindle edition, which with one of the problems that developed with the book, uh, and there too my publisher and I had a disagreement because I wanted to get a corrected copy out almost immediately, and technology does have the solution. So as long as uh, Amazon Kindle have gone forth and made their system about as pirate-proof, their electronic readers pirate-proof as they can, we can get a corrected edition of this book out within a month. Okay. okay. And uh, so, but even from the start, uh, we had the buy buttons that were closed on the book for almost the first month of the book's existence. Then it turned out... Uh, Bill Broad of the New York Times gave me a call one day in late February, and he was someone I really trust. I had sailed with him on one of the Titanic expeditions. I knew how he worked. We got to know each other out there, and I knew he was a very thorough researcher. And he called me and he said uh, that one of the people in my book, despite all sorts of documentation that uh, I had seen, including a letter from... President Truman that was displayed at uh, this man's funeral. Of course, he had participated in a lot of the fire bombings and everything else, and evidently he was practicing for the team that was supposed to be involved in the atomic bombings, and he had evidently gone one mission too far. He had placed himself on one of the planes, on the escort plane, the scientific photographic plane, Necessary Evil, in the seat of a man named uh, John Corliss. And it turns out that uh, there are two, when Bill Broad called me, he said, we have uh, the uh, navigator on that flight, we have another man who is near the tail section of the plane, they're both alive, and two first-hand eyewitness participants in that mission do trump all physical, uh, you know, all the physical letters and photographs and everything else that he had. Yeah. So when it was Bill Broad who called me, I knew almost immediately, and I just went very quickly in my mind through, well, all the photographs that Fuco had had and everything, 
of him standing under the nose art of one of the uh, planes uh, that's disputed, a plane called Bad Penny. Uh, Clearly photographs of him on Tinian Island, and he's the same man who a year later is in his wedding photograph, uh, that despite all of that, that he was not on that particular mission. And so I said to Bill immediately, I said, well, that trumps it, and this is a bit of history that has to be corrected as fast as possible. Okay, Charles, what actually led up to the uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki attacks? Well, the atomic bombs, they had been uh, developing for a couple of years now, and the U.S. assumed that it was in a race with uh, Germany for developing the atomic bomb. When our people got into Germany, it was a matter of when we looked at the silly reactors they had designed and the silly atomic bomb design they had, one of the messages that went back to uh, to uh, Washington was uh, uh, talking about the bomb as mothers saying, mother, you know, mother not even pregnant. So the Germans weren't even close. Uh, fortunately, whatever uranium the Germans were able to separate out with uranium-235 and refine it to higher and higher purities, they were not very friendly in terms of sharing their uranium with the Japanese because the difference between the German atomic bomb design and the Japanese atomic bomb design is that the Japanese bomb would have worked. So you're saying there, Charles, that the design would have worked, but they weren't quite there yet with the bomb. Their design would have worked, but the Japanese didn't have any of the material to put into the bomb. Okay. They uh, estimated that with all of their resources working for about 50 years, uh, that's about how long it would take them to uh, actually refine enough material to make one uranium bomb. And what they didn't count on was that uh, the Americans were working more than 10 times as fast to separate uranium, and we were also producing plutonium in uranium reactors. But what the Japanese did not know is after we tested one plutonium bomb in the desert, and after we dropped a uranium bomb over Hiroshima, and then we dropped a plutonium bomb over Nagasaki, actually the town next door, or Akami, we were out of atomic bombs for at least the next month. But why did they choose to launch a nuclear strike against um, Hiroshima and Nagasaki? What was so special about these two cities? Well, the, the cities that were chosen were chosen mainly for the manufacturing, mainly for also Hiroshima was a major... Uh, military base uh, with a huge military presence, a lot of soldiers there. Kokora was another primary target. uh, That one was the one that Charles Sweeney, who flew the Nagasaki mission, really wanted to hit. He was horrified at how large the civilian population was in central Nagasaki as opposed to the military factories that were just upriver of Nagasaki. And Sweeney did something very unusual on August 9, 1945, when a town was burning near Kokora from, fire, from more conventional firebombings the night before. The smoke was blowing right over Kokora. They passed over the target, and they could not see 
They were under orders not to drop the bomb with the new imaging radar. You had to see your target before you dropped it. And he passed through Flak the first time. This was a very well-defended site. He came back around, this time beginning to really run low on fuel, went through Flak a second time. And using a bomb, by the way, that it had these two triggers up front that if the plane had really gotten hit hard, the bomb could have blown off in the plane itself. He then went around and did something that Paul Tibbetts, who had been flying the Enola Gay, said was absolutely crazy. He made a third run at Kokora, this time through closer flak and finally with fighters coming up. He went out of his way to try to hit a target that he had seen as purely a military target. In fact, when he was told he was going to have to fly one of these missions again, the first thing he did was go across to another end of the base. Uh, He had to see a priest. Okay. And then, unable to hit Kokora, he finally went to Nagasaki, where he dropped that bomb over, he dropped it way upriver, took out all of the military sites, and what Nagasaki Central itself received, because the bomb was dropped over a valley, was more or less a shotgun effect that went through only part of the city and did manage to spare much of the civilian population of Nagasaki, which he actually got yelled at for doing that, too. <laughs> I mean, didn't the U.S. fly uh, B-29s over the people living in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but they never dropped a single bomb? Um, what was the reason for this? Well, they were the reason that they never dropped a bomb over the targets that were chosen for the atomic bombing was that the targets would be fairly pristine. You didn't want to, uh, in a scientific study by the bombing survey that would come afterward, you did not want a city that already had craters and flattened buildings through it. So they chose, pla- they chose these places months in advance, did the fire bombings almost everywhere else. I mean, by that time, almost, I think, between 53 and 57 cities including one whole section of Tokyo, had been massively firebombed. And these targets were left intact, and they were also trying to coax these cities, the ones that would be the atomic targets, into a kind of complacency, getting them used to only one or two reconnaissance planes, maybe three, flying together over Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And actually what they were doing was doing reconnaissance filming for the before and after photography, but also lulling the military into a sense of uh, false complacency. Yeah, I mean, Charles, I mean, how does the number of people killed in a normal bombing, for example, in Tokyo, compare to the number of people killed in the uh, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings? Well, in one whole section of Tokyo in a single night, 200,000 people died. And as one of the people who was involved in the firebombings had said later, there was a peculiar mathematics between that and the men who were up in the bombs, the planes that dropped the firebombs. He uh, had said that during the firebombings, we knew that there were, in some cases, over 300 other planes flying with us, and that you could convince yourself that your plane hit the gas tanks that uh, you were assigned to aim at and you were part of the wing. And 
there was play there was a way of saying when you heard 200,000 people were killed the night before that perhaps you weren't really that responsible that you didn't hit that many civilians and as he said about the atomic bombings where you had Hiroshima for example you had the lead plane and the two scientific planes that all of those souls came back to just a very few men in very few planes, even though you heard that 70,000 people were killed as opposed to 200,000 people being killed in a single day or a night, that the mathematics were much more disturbing. Harold Clayton Urey, one of the scientists who worked out how to separate the uranium, he had felt at first that what he was doing would be the end of war. He said, when humanity sees what science has done, they will see immediately that here is the end of war. And he thought afterward that the atomic bomb had made war much less impersonal that, uh, and therefore much more attractive, and that an atomic war might occur because you just drop a bomb from a plane and uh, the city is gone and you don't see what's happening to any of the people. When actually from some of the men who were in those planes, the message appears to have been quite the opposite, that the atomic bomb was much more personal than a firebombing. But the bomb was barely ready to use. I mean, tell, tell me about the scientists that died, you know, while adjusting the bomb. Now, that story, that was, uh, that's one of the problems uh, that we have to correct. There are a few things that have been said over the years Many scientists have said that there was a problem with the little boy bomb being compromised. Even the 509th, uh, they say, well, the yield of that bomb was 12.5 kilotons. Some estimates are down closer to about 10 kilotons when it was supposed to be at least 22 kilotons. But as, I think if there was any problem with that bomb, it might have been more in the design than anything else. There were several problems with the bomb. It was a design that was never, ever used again. But the story of the accident uh, in connecting the dots between certain things that Charles Sweeney had said, certain things that Harold Urey had said about maybe half the amount of uranium that they had expected to go into fission and convert to energy was uh, all that happened down to maybe a third but the connecting of those dots came from a man named Joe Fuco, who said he was there when this accident occurred. And that story, whether or not it's true, if we're dealing with someone who put himself in the seat of another man on the, one of the escort planes, and he, we know now that he was not in that seat, one of the changes in the book is that we have to completely... Uh, disregard that story until or unless other evidence comes in. But um, you, when you refer to the bomb over uh, Hiroshima, uh, you refer to it as a dud, though. I mean, are we, are we saying that the, the bomb was only partially detonated or, or the effect was only partially what, it, what was a, uh, the bomb could have produced? It was, uh, the yield was one-half to one-third of what its design yield was for whatever reason. And there are a number of engineers, uh, people have said its yield was a disappointment. Uh, it's uh, even by several people been occasionally called a dud. And yet the real lesson is 
look at the horror that something that went off with only between 10 and 12 and a half kilotons was able to do, as opposed to the, to the Nagasaki bomb, which most people have, you know, the second of anything tends to get forgotten. <laughs> you want to be remembered, you have to be the first. Yeah. And the Nagasaki bomb was three times more powerful than the Hiroshima bomb, well, up to three times more powerful, at least twice as powerful. And yet what most people remember are the pictures of Hiroshima. And look what something that many people considered a disappointment was able to do. And we're talking about a bomb that is power, that had about half the yield of what we worry about with Iran and North Korea producing these days. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, y you imagine the effect of uh, the bomb which went off in Nagasaki, which had the full yield. You, I, mean, I suppose you imagine that going off in London or New York. I mean, the, the effects would be devastating, wouldn't they? Right, and imagine even worse if it is the sort of bomb that's detonated in a truck or a car at ground level. The radiation effects would be far, far worse. You're talking about a massive explosion, and on top of that, something that matches and even that really matches and might even exceed Chernobyl. Yeah. Even though again the design of the bomb was never used again this this shotgun design was it? Right. The uh design where you shoot these uh uranium 235 rings and compress them into a pin uh, of uranium, a cone of uranium, uh, it was never used again. There were a lot of problems with that bomb. Yeah. It was a design that was a little bit twitchy, and it could even go off when you didn't want it to explode. The main technology that had to go into that bomb was making sure that it didn't it surge or explode when you did not want it to, which was why that bomb was armed in flight on the way to Hiroshima rather than on Tinian Island itself. They didn't want the thing blowing up inside the plane and taking the whole island with it. Now, the, when the bomb dropped, um, there was the story of the, the town clock that had stopped a few days earlier. What, what do you know about this story? Right, there was a woman who survived in a bank very near to the hypocenter. She was in this very well-protected, steel reinforced concrete building with granite so she was able to survive not very far from the Hiroshima dome inside what we call a shock cocoon she and one of her friends and they had been joking that morning about the futility of everything and about this clock in the town that had stopped at a quarter past eight and there were no men who could be relieved from military duty, any engineers who could fix the clock. And so the clock seemed stuck forever at that time. The interesting thing is that had anyone fixed the clock or not, it would still have stopped at a quarter past eight in the morning, like every other clock in Hiroshima, once the Hiroshima, Hiroshima bomb detonated. And in fact, throughout the city, there were numerous clocks and even watches that people were wearing that uh, were found just stopped at a quarter past eight. Okay. And you just mentioned there the words uh, shock cocoon. W what do you mean by that? Uh, shock cocoons, they occur around all major explosive events. 
And in fact, had there not been a problem with gamma radiation and a neutron spray going in through windows of buildings, the two or three people who survived in buildings almost directly under the atomic bomb uh, would have lived uh, probably without any ill effects. And uh, Shakakun, it's a place where, as near as we can tell, and we don't quite know how they form, we know that some of them form when something, a piece of metal or something is pointed in just the right direction toward the explosion, and the forces converge, uh, diverge around that point, almost in the way that a ship would be, uh, the prow of a ship would be cutting through water or the nose of a jet through supersonic air. And if you're behind that place where the forces are diverging, then you're relatively safe where anyone to either side of you might be essentially disintegrated by those forces. And that's what happened in Hiroshima. It's a reason that you see trees near the Hiroshima Dome that were still pointing straight up and somewhat intact, and the telephones were intact, and the dome itself was standing right there in the middle of it. You know, what was it like, Charles, when the actual bomb went off? I mean, what would it have been like directly underneath the bomb? Well, for about, uh, as far as the compressed air coming down at you, bellying down in this large hemisphere of compressed air, it the forces, if you had something that was diverging the forces, it only had to work for about one two hundredth of a second. And then the forces would continue down. And the other thing that happened, if you imagine a, a hemisphere or the lower edge of a dome of compressed air hitting the ground, then it's going to, in the center, bounce upward, and you're going to have, as it spreads outward, a precursor wave or a compression wave that moves out laterally along the ground, plowing everything around it outward. A uh, similar example, and one of the Japanese scientists had actually recognized that, boy, how much Hiroshima, which was where the bomb went off, was over a flat plain and a, a, a river plain, and how much it resembled the pictures they had seen of Tunguska, Siberia, where you had uh, probably a meteorite of charcoal-like carbonaceous uh, chondrite composition that hit the atmosphere, detonated high above the ground, and everything was plowed outward for miles and miles around, and yet the trees in the center were still standing upright. Okay. And um, another thing in your book is you describe black rain. But just for the listeners, what, what is black rain? The black rain is a lot of irradiated material, most of it uh, right under the bomb that was hauled up into the sky, into the mushroom cloud, and also where for about the next 30 seconds you still had some dissipation from radiation effect going on and actually even further irradiating the material that was being drawn up into the cloud. And once it hit, once it started to condense, drawing up also a lot of vaporized water from every leaf on every tree and bush that was under the bomb. The black radioactive soot started condensing with the moisture in the upper atmosphere and came down as black hail and black rain. And this was very highly radioactive material. And one of the effects of the bomb itself is if you were within about 1.4 miles of the bomb, a couple of kilometers, 
you received enough of a dose of radiation that your insides felt uh, you you began to develop uh, an almost unquenchable thirst. And plus your skin was usually badly flash burned. Imagine a severe sunburn, which increases your thirst. And as the black rain came down, people started collecting it in cans that were lying around or in their hands and actually drinking the black rain to quench this thirst. And one of the bad things about radioactive material is it tends to concentrate in biological systems. We need to take a break there, so uh, stay tuned and we'll be right back. To connect with the show, email kevin at themoreshow.co.uk. Some velvet morning when I'm straight I'm gonna open up your gate And maybe tell you about Phaedra And how she gave me life And how she made Yeah. 
to The Moore Show. And here's your host, Kevin Moore. Welcome back to the show. I'm currently joined here with my guest, Charles Pellegrino. Uh, Charles, welcome back. Um, Now, we were just discussing before the break there the idea of the black rain. Um, And um, I was going to ask you, um, not everyone that drunk the black rain um, died of the high isotope level that you would expect to find in the water. Right. Uh, One of the women that we were just talking about in the bank who wrote about the uh, clock that had stopped at 8.15, she was still alive as of at least last year, and yet her friend died, and they both drank the black rain. The thing is, we're not robots. We don't all fall at once or in the same way. So an amount of radiation that uh, might kill me you might survive. Yeah, exactly. It's, um, it's and we don't really understand why. No, no, we don't. No, but I mean, at this time when the uh, the bomb had been, uh, the, they set the bomb off. I mean, the Japanese High Command, you know, they didn't feel it was possible that this bomb existed, and um, you know, they still um, didn't surrender straight away, did they? Well, they sent in scientists to confirm very quickly that yes, this was an atomic bomb. And one of them tried to say around uh, August 7th, the day after Hiroshima, take our our word for it, there there is no defense against this kind of power. The fire bombings are destroying us all on their own, and now if among the fire bombings we have these nuclear weapons coming in at us, uh, we've had it. And August 9th, the second atomic bomb was dropped, and the emperor agreed with uh, his foreign minister and with a couple of other people that he should record a record to surrender. And that, and the foreign minister put word that, uh, well, what are the conditions of surrender now? And the U.S. in turn had a moratorium that said, okay, for four days we won't do any bombings. We'll just drop leaflets for the people warning them to surrender. So whereas there had been fire bombings every night on all the way up through the atomic bombing of Nagasaki on August 9th, we had this moratorium that went on until August 14th. What the people in the U.S. did not know is that there was a divide within the imperial palace. There was actually a coup taking place in which the emperor for a while was even held prisoner, He was considered, even by the more fanatical warlords, still sacred, so they couldn't kill him, but they did kill some of his supporters. And then on the night of August 14th, 
almost anything that could fly was sent into Japan. Over 3,000 planes, closer to 3,500 planes, firebombing everything that was still standing that they could find. And it was finally that, plus the approach of the American fleet, uh, that Americans, uh, that Japanese spotter planes were deliberately allowed to see and report back about that finally brought about the uh, end of the divide, the end of this stalemate, and then the supporters of the emperor took over and his broadcast was put out there on August 15th that uh, Japan was surrendering. Yeah. I mean, um, when the bomb went off as well, I mean, would shadows be imprinted on the walls? And uh, if so, would this kind of death be uh, quick and painless? There uh, were shadows everywhere in both cities. Any place that where there, where there was a wall still standing and there had been something, either a bush or a tree or a clothesline, even a dog or a person, there would be a shadow on the wall. That's how, by tri- multiple triangulations, they were able to figure out exactly where the center of the detonation had been, where the light came from. In her- the case of Hiroshima, only if you were very close to the bomb and caught outdoors was death and vaporization instantaneous. The horror of it is that about up to about 1.2 miles away, you could still be exposed to the flash from the bomb and be badly burned on one whole side of your body, leaving a shadow across the Masasa Bridge. And as we know, one woman who was on that bridge who uh, left a shadow on the bridge, uh, along with the people who were traveling with her, uh, she survived for up to six days. There was a boy who was at a little closer than the Masasa Bridge who was in his, in his parents, uh, his aunt's garden, and he survived for up to six days. He was partly protected by the plants in the garden, and he had burns over what turned out to be only about 30% of his body. And he had the shadows of the plants on his body, and he happened to have been wearing a hat at the time, so his face was protected. And the nurses who brought him to a rescue center thought that this boy would live, but he was also within a range where the radiation was uh, just the prompt effects of the radiation were enough to be lethal in his case. He should have survived from the burns, but it was the radiation that eventually killed him. Now, when the bomb went off as well, obviously, you know, people had different eyewitness accounts of uh, different events. But, I mean, tell me about the the tornadoes of fire, or as you, or some people refer to, the grass boys. Oh, well, there were, from the blast itself, uh, Mr. Yamaguchi, who's another person, the only person we know of who survived uh, the Hiroshima and the Nagasaki blast within the fringe of Ground Zero which is an area where for 85% or more of the people who are exposed unprotected, they die and most buildings are flattened. Uh, He had seen where he survived the first bombing. He thought at first he was seeing grass growing out of the backs of these boys, and it was actually grass that was uplifted by the lateral blast and almost like darts blown into the skin of people. There was another term used as well, wasn't there? The um, ant people. 
Right. Uh, most of these terms are actually uh, terms that come from people who were children at the time and how they described what they saw. So there were the ant walkers or the ant people, and these were people who would file one behind the other like ants. Uh, there's a doctor who survived and kept a diary, Dr. Haichia. He was actually among these people that were observed, walking in shock for about an hour or two, and uh, that you just lost a sense of yourself and you would follow wherever the person in front of you was following. And they said that people saw this, and it was extraordinary that these people would be walking over rubble and debris and climbing and following one after another, where only a few steps away was a level road and sidewalk that were free of debris that they could have been walking on. Yeah. And uh, it was uh, the ant walkers that went on for several days. The worst of them, who were very badly injured, eventually... Uh, um, one of the nurses, uh, Nancy Cantwell, she observed them after about three days, and Dr. Fuji took her back into the rescue center, said we must go back inside. She saw them basically bleeding water from exposed muscle, and she just had to watch to convince herself to her own satisfaction that these last of the ant walkers were no longer aware of themselves, were no longer, did not seem to be in any pain. And then she went back to treating the people, the burn victims that were within the rescue station. Yeah. I mean, it's like you mentioned at the beginning of the show, where you said about the uh, the blast that also caused some people uh, to sort of have a corrective eye surgery. Yes, there were two cases that I know of of that. There was a soldier who was... Uh, in a supply cellar, so he was underground, uh, but the blast wave still struck him, and uh, he also discovered that his glasses, through all of it, had remained on his face, and when he got outside and he couldn't see, he found that when he removed his glasses, he could see more clearly. And the one doctor who had the same sort of thing happen to him he had said to me, this is back about 1973-74, in uh, one of the most amazing cases of understatement I've ever heard, he said, but of course, I would not recommend nuclear detonations for corrective eye surgery. Yeah, I mean, we've talked there about the injuries sustained to the, uh, the human population, but what about the animals? What about people's pets? I mean, what sort of injuries did they sustain? Well, uh, Dr. Haichia spoke of a horse that uh, had survived, and they kept the horse in uh, you know, his potato garden in the hospital until finally the horse died. The horse had been very badly burned and injured and had suffered actual degloving injuries. Uh, degloving is a very kind of polite way of putting what happens when the blast hits and the skin is pulled off like a glove, almost like the scene in the movie Terminator 2 where Arnold Schwarzenegger pulls the skin off of his uh, hand at one point in the film. And that happened to people, it happened to animals, it happened to Dr. Haichia's horse, which they tended to until finally it did die, and then it became a source of food for the people in the hospital. Yeah, I mean, what happens to the human body when it's actually exposed to high levels of radiation? 
Uh, many things. It depends on whether you're exposed to prompt radiation, which both things happen. The radiation that radiates from the bomb itself during those uh, first few seconds, and uh, a lot of the uh, radiation passes right through you. The gamma rays, for example, like x-rays, they'll pass right through you, but your body will intercept some of them, and that's when you have trouble. They'll scramble uh, and break chromosomes. Then, of course, there's the secondary radiation, the material that comes down in the black rain, the radioactive dust that you inhale or that ends up in your skin or in your body and continues to radiate uh, for days, sometimes even months, some of the particles even for years afterward. Now, your book is based, uh, obviously called The Last Train from uh, Hiroshima. Where was this last train going? Uh, It's the people on the last train, uh, actually two trains, that went from Hiroshima to Nagasaki. At the heart of the book are the people who incredibly survived both bombings, some of whom knew uh, that Hiroshima had been left pristine probably for a reason, probably for a testing of whatever this new heat ray bomb was that had destroyed Hiroshima. Uh, Two of them were engineers, and they figured this out, and all they wanted to do was get home to their families in Nagasaki, which they knew was another city that had been left pristine, and they said, if I am to die in one of these bombs, I am to die with my family. And two of them actually survived both bombings with their families. In fact, one of them, uh, Mr. Yamaguchi, his wife survived because he came to Nagasaki injured, and she took care of him, and her schedule had been changed that day, and she ended up in a later part of the day than she normally would have been uh, arriving at her work detail at the new tunnels that were being built by Mitsubishi. So she and the infant child that she kept with her both survived because her husband had been injured in Hiroshima. Right. Now, did you meet Mr. Yamaguchi? Yes, yes. Okay. Met him uh, twice. In fact, the last time was December 22nd, 2009. Okay. He called me and uh, James Cameron uh, to uh, his bed and uh, had us kind of make a promise to him that we would, as he put it at one point, we would become the flame. He would pass on the torch and we would become the flame together to wake people from this amnesia that we've had since the Cold War ended about what nuclear weapons really do and help people to remember so that there would not be another city, hopefully, ever knowing a hypocenter. And also that we would carry on his idea, which was something that several of the survivors came forth with, what in America we call the pay-it-forward principle and that through acts of human kindness, while our government leaders are doing what they can to hopefully prevent nuclear weapons from being detonated again, that perhaps by random acts of human kindness uh, rippling outward and outward, that you might, without ever knowing it, someone whose life you touch might end up touching the life of a child who's growing up in a very bad situation, thinks there's nothing good in humanity, and yet 
he might be put on a different path just by this uh, pay-it-forward principle reaching him. Now, it's uh, probably a very low probability hope, but I would rather work for that than to just sit back and do nothing and depend only on our leaders. And it's an amazing idea because it empowers even children. Yeah, it's kind of like a modern father of the world, maybe. Yeah, and it's a scary thing where in America, especially during the last uh, nine years or so, I hear people all the time saying, oh, nuke this one, nuke that one, and people have forgotten what the term nuke them really means. That's right. Absolutely no idea. The absolute destructive power of the uh, of the modern-day weapons as well. I mean, if you compare the modern-day nuclear weapon to uh, the ones used um, on uh, Nagasaki, uh, you know, this, the power is just incredible, isn't it? Yeah, uh, most of the tactical nuclear weapons uh, that we are talking about around the world today, they're actually about the power of the Nagasaki bomb. But uh, also a, a sub-theme between the title of the book is that, you know, if we don't all try to do something, then we are all on that last train from Hiroshima now. And you know, that's the worry. What's your take on um, suitcase nukes? Well, actually, yeah, the Russian suitcase uh, nuclear weapons, they're mostly, uh, they're really more or less an urban legend. Uh, the, they're much larger than suitcases, and plus the Russian uh, bombs, are their electronics are designed to deteriorate every three months. The Russian bombs have to be rebuilt every three months, and that is part of their whole fail-safe. And we have similar systems with our bombs, especially when it involves things like, you know, polonium and such, that its half-life is such. The bomb has to basically be rebuilt and recharged every three months. Hmm. What's your take as well, that uh, Japan had already surrendered, yet the Americans still launched the bomb? Well, actually, Japan had not yet surrendered, and uh, there was a four-day moratorium between the Nagasaki bomb and the massive firebombings of the country on the night of August 14th. It was really the massive firebombings that broke, finally, the stalemate that uh, was going on in the palace because there was a period there we didn't know about it, but that the emperor was basically held powerless. The atomic bombs themselves, uh, what most people seem to uh, think is that Japan was sitting out there with its cities intact and uh, green, and that suddenly there were these two atomic bombs, and it wasn't that at all. For months before the two atomic bombs, there were fire bombings all over the country. And what the uh, military considered it at that time is that the atomic bombs were just two more things that were in the toolbox. And it wasn't until afterward when they saw that these were things that were in their own way even more horrifying in their effects than the fire bombings that had killed 200,000 people in Tokyo in a single night. Uh, that uh, the radiation effects were far, far greater than 
what even the scientists who designed the bombs at the time had thought that would happen. No one had expected, for example, that it would all come right down very near to the explosion center as the Black Rain, for example. Yeah. I mean, is Hiroshima and Nagasaki, are they still relatively, is there still relatively low uh, radioactive pockets uh, present there? Well, actually, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, uh, the radiation levels there are very, very low, almost undetectable. But the reason of this is that you had a typhoon sweep through. And you had tremendous rains throughout the whole southern part of the country in September of 1945. And almost all of the radiation was washed out into the rivers, buried under the mud, washed off the land and out to sea. And that's why the residual radiation wasn't quite as bad for as long as it would have normally been if, for example, you detonated the Nagasaki bomb over for example, Las Vegas, or over California during a very dry season. The Nagasaki bomb at up to almost 30 kilotons, not many people know this, the destruction could have been much worse if it had been detonated over a very dry area with a lot of dry vegetation, because uh, 80 kilometers away or 50 miles away, trees on mountainsides facing the Nagasaki bomb where the leaves were flash desiccated on one side. What this means is if you detonated it over at high altitude at 600 meters over California during a dry season, you would probably have created a, ton, a hurricane of fire uh, 100 miles across possibly with a hypercane in the center reaching all the way up into the stratosphere. And that's from something that we regard today as a Model T bomb. Yeah, I mean, you just couldn't imagine it, could you, really? But um, that's what it's capable of, yeah. I mean, with regarding the survivors of, of these um, bombs, I mean, we must be uh, losing the survivors to history now. I mean, uh, is, th is there many left? There are thousands, several thousand adults that you can still reach and interview about the atomic bombs and their survival. The frightening statistic is most, in fact, almost all of the people who were children who still had growing bones and bodies uh, at the time of the bombing and who were exposed to the radiation, almost all of them are gone. And so it had a cascade effect on growing bodies, whereas if you had chromosomal dislocations and your cells are rapidly multiplying, that's going to ripple down, uh, down line into whether the cells are in your growing kidneys or your liver or, uh, or your skin. Yeah, yeah, no. And so the cancer rates in children were very, very high, uh, especially bone marrow cancer. Now, we're coming to the end here, uh, Charles, but um, I, I just wanted to ask you about uh, James Cameron's next project. You've probably been asked this question a few times, but um, has he not cited your book as a, a potential next project for one of his movies? Yes, he has, as one of the sources for a film that uh, he's been kind of... You see, we both have the same two obsessions. One is 
will our civilization survive? So he's been thinking about doing a film on one way or another of telling the stories of Hiroshima and Nagasaki for a couple of decades. And the bridge between the two cities is, of course, the double survivors, the people who survived both atomic bombings. Uh, So our one big question is that we've both carried with us in almost all of our works is, do we know how to survive as a civilization? Are we going to stay alive? And then the second question which he addresses in Avatar is, if we survive to get out there and do the wonderful things that we have the potential to do and eventually bridge the stars, are there trolls lying under that bridge that we have to watch out for? And are those trolls under the bridge ahead really us? Well put. What's your website, uh, Charles, for people to get in contact with yourself or just to see your work? Uh, CharlesPellegrino.com, and then there's a discussion group attached to the website, and people can go on the discussion group and contact me through that, too. Well, look, Charles, I just want to thank you very much for coming on today, and we look forward to welcoming you back on when we have phone-in lines. Thank you. To find out more on Charles Pellegrino, go to www.charlespellegrino.com. Well, from myself and my guest, until next time, thanks for listening.